Welcome to the War in Ukraine update from Kyiv podcast. I'm Jessica Ganawa, a senior lecturer in international relations at Flinders University in Australia, and I'm talking today with Professor Lucan Wei. Lucan is a professor of political science at the University of Toronto and focuses in his work on global patterns of democracy and dictatorship. Lucan is well known for his 2015 book, Pluralism by Default, Weak Autocrats and the Rise of Competitive Politics, which examines sources of political competition in what we could call weak autocracies or emerging democracies with a particular focus on states that were formerly a part of the Soviet Union. However, in today's episode, we're focusing on Lucan's recent book, co-authored with Professor Stephen Levitsky, called Revolution and Dictatorship, The Violent Origins of Durable Authoritarianism, which outlines this interesting and little bit curious phenomenon of the durability of authoritarian regimes that were founded through a violent social revolution. I look forward to discussing some of the key arguments from the book on the podcast today and also reflecting on possible implications for Russia's current war in Ukraine. Thanks for joining me on the podcast today, Lucan. Sure. First of all, I'm curious. I mean, this is a really interesting book and it it explores this sort of phenomenon of the durability of these authoritarian regimes that were founded through violent social revolution in a way that no one else has indicated. So what motivated yourself and Stephen Levitsky to engage in this particular research project and write this book? So it really came out of our first book together in 2010, which is Competitive Authoritarianism, in which we examined the trajectories of you know, sort of hybrid democratic authoritarian regimes that emerged in the 1990s. And one of our arguments was that regimes such as Zimbabwe and Mozambique that emerged out of violent struggle tended to be much more durable and stay in power, whereas those that did not were less durable. And we sort of decided, we, you know, this is probably worth a, a separate book. And we ended up going far back in history, you know, and looking at particular kind of regimes that emerge out of social revolution, which is a kind of very different type of revolution from the real revolu- types of revolutions that most of us are probably used to watching in Ukraine and, and, and Georgia or the Arab Spring. Mm-hmm. So in that regard, how do you define a social revolution in the book, which is the basis for these really durable authoritarian regimes? Right. So, so social revolutions are cases in which Outsiders, you know, there was people unconnected to the old regime, seized power on the backs of mass protest, but and in which, you know, they sort of destroy the the state and engage in efforts to really radically transform society. So, you know, the kind of revolutions that many of us are familiar with, you know, today, sort of in Ukraine in 2004, uh, the Arab Spring, you know, you see lots of people on the streets, the dictator falls. But, you know, for the most part, what's interesting about those cases is that society kind of more or less remains the same. You still have private property, people, you know, you still have various forms of capitalism. Um, And I remember because I've been I was at, you know, these kind of political revolutions in Ukraine in 2004 and 2014. And one of the most striking things is that you sort of you're just a couple of blocks from the mass protests and everything is completely as before. There's no real kind of 
nothing has changed. And indeed, some of these revolutions, kind of political revolutions, lead to democracy, but society remains more or less intact. You still have the same army. You still have the same social system. The kind of social revolutions that I'm talking about are the kind of classic Theta Scotch Bowl, Sam Huntington type revolutions, where revolutionaries like Khomeini in Iran or, or Lenin in, in Russia come to power and they're not simply interested in cha- you know, transforming the regime per se, but in sort of eliminating private property, you know, destroying whole social classes, imposing kind of religious rule and the like. This is sort of far more radical than you see in most cases. And indeed, you know, they're quite rare. Um, we count about 20 of these social revolutions since 1900. And they almost always re- result in violence and sort of mass scale violence, both civil war or external war. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that phenomenon of that sort of wide-scale social destruction and transformation is really interesting. So I guess obviously we won't cover everything in the book here today, but what are some of the reasons that these regimes that are founded through that type of widespread social revolution tend to be so durable? So what's interesting about these cases is that the end result is oftentimes these quite durable autocracies such as Soviet Union or China um, or Iran today, but they tend to actually be born quite weak. I mean, sort of Lenin and the Bolsheviks controlled a few cities. They didn't really have much, any, almost any presence in the countryside. Uh, Khomeini in Iran, you know, headed this very kind of ramshackle coalition of secular nationalists, clerics, and communists. He hadn't been in Iran for 15 years. He actually didn't even have enough look, trusted contacts to fill out a ruling council when he first arrived in early 1979. And but unlike most dictators, rather than sort of, you know, seeking to kind of gain support of allies or kind of, you know, international support, they really sort of make enemies with literally everyone. You know, they sort of, you know, Lenin declared a war on capitalism. Khomeini declared clerical rule, which was very unpopular with his, you know, his socialist allies who, who helped him overthrow the Shah. And he also kind of declared his intent to foment revolution throughout the uh, Persian Gulf. So, you know, so these are kind of leaders who who do the opposite of what you might expect in terms of, you know, leaders who simply want to keep power. But what this does is it leads to kind of this intense violent struggle, you know, war between Iran and Iraq and, and Iran and sort of civil war in Russia. And it's this conflict, which if the regime survives, you know, helps them kind of create these very, very durable authoritarian institutions, high levels of elite cohesion, sort of, you know, there's very few defections, this sort of powerful and loyal army, in which they, you know, they suffer almost no coups. And finally, they kind of, through the process of conflict, eliminate sort of other organized potential sources of opposition, the church, the old other opposition parties, the previous monarchy and the like. So they really kind of emerge through this kind of conflict, which is fomented by this radical initiatives, you know, as a very deeply powerful authoritarian regime. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that's fascinating how, there's sort of like this tendency towards isolationism is almost inbuilt into this type of political regime. So could you talk a little bit more about how specifically for the Soviet Union, you know, the Soviet Union is obviously one of these regimes, part of this phenomenon. So could you talk a little bit more about how for the Soviet Union, violent social revolution was really part of its founding and then also contributed to its durability? Yeah, so the Soviet Union was founded in a three-year-long civil war, sort of, that was, you know, the, the whites versus the reds. The whites, the kind of anti-communist, anti-Bolsheviks were supported by a number of Western powers. 
Um, this is an incredibly brutal war, and it was important in a number of, of important ways. First, you know, the, the Bolsheviks were a political party that had no sort of really armed wing. They had a few Red Guards who were kind of completely disorganized and would sort of flee at the sight of blood. And they also had an ideology which was very anti-state. The, the, Lenin's assumption was that once you eliminate class conflict, there'll be no need for a state. But when they seized power in October of 1917, they faced immediate resistance from the czarist bureaucracy. So they did two things. Um, they created a, the security services, the Chaka, which later became the KGB. And they also created a new kind of Red Army. So they were forced to kind of rapidly build a state kind of on the spot from scratch. And the KGB in the, the Chaka, the security services, became, ultimately became the most powerful security services in the world, I think, arguably, in terms of extent and, and sort of penetration of society. And so that wouldn't have happened without this violent struggle. And that's what you know caused it. The Civil War also led to this a party, the Communist Party, which had a kind of re religious devotion to unity. You know, there's this sort of, sort of this intense unity, uh, which was really fed in part by this belief that they were the only socialist country in the world. And they were surrounded with a called capitalist encirclement. They were surrounded by capitalist powers, and therefore any kind of deviation or sort of disunity would sort of lead to counter-revolution. So there was this deeply embedded norm, kind of Leninist norm of discipline and unity, which actually became a kind of model for other authoritarian parties in the 20th century, from like Zimbabwe to Taiwan and the like. So this was kind of the first authoritarian party was founded by Lenin. But the kind of character, the kind of strength of the party was really a function of this kind of initial violent struggle. And finally, you know, the, the war kind of eliminated the Mensheviks and other sort of potential sources of opposition to the regime. So they really kind of emerged, you know, quite powerful. Mm -hmm. And this is not directly part of the subject of your book, but I couldn't help also thinking about whether there are some legacies or implications of that character of the Soviet Union for the current Russian ruling regime. Now, obviously, the current regime is not considered to be one that was formed as part of violent social revolution, formed out of the breakdown of the Soviet Union. But nevertheless, I couldn't help wondering whether there are still some legacies that shape the character of Putin's regime itself. So what would be your reflections on that question? Absolutely. Actually, that's something I've sort of begun to write about. It's something we don't write about in the book. As you say, sort of Putin's regime, the kind of regime that emerged after 1991, you know, with first president Boris Yeltsin, who then sort of transferred power to a successor, Vladimir Putin, you know, by our, you know, this is nothing like a revolutionary regime. It wasn't founded in violent struggle. <laughs> You know, Yeltsin and Putin came to power via election, and, and they didn't sort of attempt sort of the kinds of radical social transformation that we've witnessed in revolutionary regimes. And also, I should just add that Putin himself is quite disdainful of Lenin, and sort of actually sort of sees Lenin as some bizarre reason as the kind of kind of source of Ukrainian identity. We won't go into that, but the point is that despite that, despite the fact there are kind of I think two clear legacies of the Soviet Union that really facilitate authoritarian durability in the current in Putin's current regime. The first is that the, the Soviet Union's totalitarian rule completely wiped out any kind of civil society that might have existed in Tsar's times. And so there's really, you know, opposition for those of you who are perhaps someone older like me who remember these things, you know, was basically consisted of a few dissidents and sort of 
you know, they had no real organized opposition whatsoever. I know it was kind of independent society. So even chess clubs, you know, independent chess clubs weren't allowed. Everything was sort of essentially controlled by the state. As a result, sort of there was a very few sort of initiatives from below. And these, you know, began to emerge after the collapse of the Soviet Union, but they were quite weak and sort of easy to wipe out, for, you know, for any autocrat. So that's one legacy, which I think is still sort of intensely weak civil society. The other, which is, you know, even more important, is the, the security services, right? So even though Putin rejects Lenin, the what's called the FSB really emerged directly out of the Chaka, the, the security services that were formed in 1917. There's a really a direct line. And what's interesting is that, you know, I've been rereading this stuff because I'm writing about it. You know, the KGB was one of the, the few institutions to really survive Gorbachev's reforms, perestroika reforms in the 1980s, it was left relatively untouched, in part because it was considered all powerful and they didn't want to sort of take that on. And uh, I think at some point, they Gorbachev referred to it as a hornet's nest. you sort of leave it be. And when Yeltsin came to power in 1991, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, he initially was sort of aimed to sort of destroy the security services and democratize Russia but, you know, became quickly convinced, one, that it was like a this kind of powerful hornet's nest that he didn't want to touch, but also that he saw it could be useful for him. And so they actually, I mean, they divided up the former KGB. It was somewhat reorganized, but a substantial portion of personnel were directly transferred to the now called the FSB, uh, the Federal Security Bureau, which is the kind of current security services in, in Russia. And it sort of remained intensely powerful and that really, you know, that's where, as most, most of the listeners probably know, that's where you know, the institution out of which Vladimir Putin emerged. And it sort of is a kind of major institution which gives the, the current regime a capacity to suppress any forms of opposition uh, that it wants to. It sort of it surveys most of the population, has been responsible for the killing and suppression of uh, numerous opposition activists in one way or the other, from Nemtsov to Navalny and others. And so I think, you know, while Putin's regime is definitely not a revolutionary regime, I haven't really come up with the term for it, but it's almost kind of a legacy, The certain legacies, you know, clearly are sort of helping Putin right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's really fascinating and important to understand. I guess this might relate to what you've just outlined in terms of those legacy factors. But I am curious on your perspective, like I know you've also looked at the Ukrainian political context quite a lot during the 1990s and 2000s. And we did see in both sort of Russia and Ukraine during the 1990s, a kind of political opening, even if maybe that was quite chaotic in some ways. But then in the 2000s, we've really seen Russia kind of closing up again, if I could put it that way, whereas Ukraine seems to have evolved along a trajectory of continued kind of political opening. I'm wondering if you could outline at least some of the reasons that you see why we've seen those quite different political trajectories in Russia and in Ukraine. Yeah, that's a really kind of important question. I think there are kind of more structural sources, but also kind of more contingent forces that sort of at play here. In terms of the kind of structural forces, I think, you know, Russia has been able to sort of rely on natural resources, which many, you know, in political science communities see as a source of sort of durable authoritarianism. I think also, you know, as I mentioned, the kind of weak civil society, the very strong course of apparatus, the strong security services that were kind of retained in Russia also provided a, a key source of authoritarian durability. There's also sort of you know, there's a contingency in the sense that, you know, as Michael McFall, 
professor at Stanford oftentimes notes, well, you know, imagine if Boris Yeltsin as his successor had not chosen a former KGB agent, but it's elected Boris Nemtsov, a, a total Democrat, then Russian history might have been quite different. I think that's, you know, true. And I think it's important to keep that in mind. I, I th- certainly think it's important to resist the kind of temptation to see Russia as sort of deeply culturally authoritarian and sort of it was doomed to be autocracy and whatnot. And there's sort of all sorts of contingencies. And Russia was very close to being a democracy in the 1990s. So I really resist these kind of cultural explanations. But nonetheless, you know, given the weakness of civil society and the strength of the course of apparatus, it, was, it just wasn't that hard to sort of create a kind of stable authoritarian regime. Then you have Ukraine, which in some ways, you know, there were sort of legacies of the KGB in, in Ukraine, although much less robust. Here, I think that as I've argued in, in my book, Pluralism by Default, I think, you know, the sort of the main factor that was at play, I think, is the kind of these kind of deep regional divisions between Eastern and Western Ukraine that undermined governance and created important sources of, of corruption, but nonetheless um, made it much harder for any single group to monopolize power. And so until 2014, the political spectrum was really organized around a kind of Russophile group of parties in eastern Ukraine um, and a more U- Ukrainophile or Euro- Europhile type parties in the West. You know, these the East did not, you know, when I say Russophile, I use the term very carefully. There's, you know, many times in the media, they're oftentimes referred to as pro-Russian, which kind of implies that they want to join with Russia, which is definitely not the case. I've lived in the eastern Ukraine. They didn't have any particular desire to join Russia, but they definitely kind of saw Ukraine as kind of part of you know, Russian culture, and they, you know, read Tolstoy, and, and they enjoyed Russian TV. Um, and that, and they had a sort of, they had tremendous differences over foreign policy from like the more Western parts of the country. And this really sort of organized politics as a kind of, even though the parties themselves were quite weak, you had the kind of almost kind of back and forth between Russophile and Ukrainophile forces in Ukraine. It's hard, much harder given those divisions for any single group to sort of monopolize power. That's really interesting how the sort of divisions and contest actually led to a more pluralistic society. And I guess we also see with President Zelensky now, who did grow up in Eastern Ukraine, was, you know, is a Russian speaker himself, and yet is very much in favor of an independent Ukraine, Ukrainian national identity. So almost the merging or coming closer together, maybe, of those sort of contested identities. Absolutely. So, I mean, I think that what's interesting about it is that in a sense, you know, before 2014, before the first Russian invasion, when we think about other countries, we, you know, nationalism has always been a kind of powerful source of authoritarianism, right? So that's how dictators legitimate themselves through nationalism often. That really wasn't available to Ukrainian leaders in the 1990s and 2000s because nationalism itself was so divided. And that's changing. So I think, you know, because of Putin and the invasion, Ukraine is in a sense becoming kind of a more normal country, you know, which is like a unified national identity, which I think is overall kind of a good thing, but does mean that sort of at least the previous sources of pluralism are kind of no longer there. So I think it's interesting to see. I mean, I think, you know, I don't think that doesn't mean that Ukraine is destined to be an autocracy after the victory, but I think it it does mean that sort of the nature of politics is going to sort of changing quite dramatically, you know, after after the war. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that makes me think about the very vibrant civil society within Ukraine that you mentioned, and that seems as though it could form the basis for an ongoing, robust pluralism into the future. 
So I guess finally, as someone who's followed both the Ukrainian and the Russian context for many years, we're now heading into the second year of Russia's full-scale invasion. Obviously, the war has been going on longer than that, but heading into a second year of full-scale war between Russia and Ukraine. What's your evaluation of how we're likely to see the war evolve this year? I mean, one of the things I think, you know, obviously the war has been profoundly important. You know, I think overall, as it turns out, the Russian, you know, geopolitical power is much weaker than people anticipated. And I think obviously many people thought that Ukraine would lose. That has not happened. And, you know, obviously uh, Ukraine has been able to retake substantial portions of the territory taken by Russia. I think a number of factors drove this. One, you know, the, the morale of the Ukrainian troops is much higher. They know exactly why they're fighting this war, whereas the Russian troops are simply doing it for money and their sort of military culture is much more overly centralized. You know, so when they, you know, I think there's a wonderful report by the British intelligence that came out of the, about the first months of the war. And so the Russians would identify a target, but in order to bomb the target, they would have to send up okay to Moscow and 10 hours later, that target would be okayed, by which time the target was, you know, moved on. So it was this incredibly sort of inefficient kind of management structure that I think sort of undermined the Russian effort. But I think a lot of it really depends on the West. I think, you know, the, um, one of the things that we've learned, which is was certainly a news to me, is just how much ammunition and other sort of weaponry Russia stockpiled over the Soviet period and the post-Soviet period, and just massive amounts of it of artillery and the like, I, I had no idea. I mean, you sort of get the sense of the country, which is kind of this storehouse for weapons. And, you know, Ukraine has quickly run out of its own weapons and it's a smaller country and sort of relies heavily on Western aid, which is, you know, thankfully not going to being quite, you know, I think forthcoming. And that's really going to determine the conflict. So I think sort of a Russian victory, I think is completely implausible. Um, I think the sort of more danger is a kind of, frozen conflict type situation, which you've seen in other you know, countries in, um, in uh, Georgia and the like. And so I, I, that's what I worry about. And so I, I just, I think it's, uh, the problem with this is that, you know, Russia has not in any way given up its war aims. And so, you know, I think the quickest way to peace is really for Russia to be defeated. And I think a lot of that depends on the degree to which West is, the West is willing to sort of send the critical weaponry required for victory negotiation at this point this is completely off the table mm-hmm. well thanks luke and i really appreciate you being on the podcast today and sharing your insights into this domain i've really enjoyed the conversation great well thank you so much for uh, having me join thanks for listening and thanks to gonka Varol for our theme music